10.27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for leading us here this morning to sit before you, to hear your words of comfort, your words of conviction. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would expose our sin, and that you would comfort us in the inward man as only you can. We thank you for this time with you. We pray, Father, that it would be fruitful in our life and that it would glorify you immensely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Christian, Christian discipleship is based on Jesus' command to follow me. But the questions that arise from this are, where are we being led? Is the command to follow Jesus merely a metaphor? Is this a mere spiritual truth? Or is Jesus leading us, alive now, personally, incarnationally, on a journey with a particular destination in mind? When he says, follow me, is he simply talking to the people who were living at the time that he was alive? Or is this something that we can do? Can we follow him? I don't know about you guys, but I I haven't actually seen Jesus before. So this seems, at first, when you first deal with this, that there's some sort of spiritual truth here. But what I want to talk about today is that this isn't some spiritual truth, merely a spiritual truth. He says, follow me, and he means it. He says, follow me to you, just as he said to Peter, just as he said to John and the other original disciples. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, those who follow Jesus are destined to bear his image. He has a destination in mind. And to be the brethren of the firstborn son of God. Their destination is Christ-likeness. We are called to always have the image of Jesus before our eyes. And beholding him adoringly, his image penetrates into the depths of our being, fills us, makes us more and more like our master. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The image of Christ should always be before our eyes because following him is not a metaphor. He literally is meant to be before our eyes, always. His image alone has the power to transform us. And if we surrender ourselves utterly to him, we cannot help but bearing his image in ourselves. Okay? This is the challenge to all of us. This is also the hope for all of us. Bearing his image is what we're called to do, and we do it by beholding him always. God made man because he wanted the joy and satisfaction of beholding his own reflection in Adam. That was why he made Adam. He wanted a miniature of himself. Man is the creature made to bear the image of the uncreated God, and for that alone, all human beings should rejoice forever. We, the created beings, were created to bear the image of the uncreated God. But the servant, uh, serpent, servant, he was not a servant, no. The serpent convinced Adam that man needed to do something to become like God. That man must attain that likeness by deciding for himself what is true and acting upon that truth. Since that day, the sons of Adam in their pride have striven to recover the divine image by their own efforts, right? We think psychology, evolution, education, medication, controlling our DNA, our environment, our universe will make us like God. That's what modern man is all about, a God-like control of the world. We still are believing this lie, as Byron was pointing out at at the picnic last week. 
right? It's not that Eve believed this lie that God didn't want us to be like him and then decided to become like God herself. This is still what we do. This isn't something that we left behind in the garden. We bore the image of God upon ourselves and lost it by believing God was a liar who did not want us to be like him. And we can't undo it. We can't polish the tarnished image in God in us. We can't. There's not enough polish in all the world. So Jesus came in the image and likeness of man to remake man in the image and likeness of God. This is what discipleship is. Okay? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because that was just a review of last week's sermon. Sorry for those of you who were here. Okay? Discipleship is the process by which the fall of man is reversed, and the essence of God is given to us as we take our place in the family of the living God. I'm going to read that again. Because we all need to spend a great deal more time pondering this. It is the process, discipleship, by which the fall of man is reversed and the essence or nature of God is given to us as we take our place in the family of the living God. That's what we're called to. That's our hope. This is our destination. It's not a spiritual truth. God says, follow me. And where he's leading you is Christ-likeness with God forever. The end by which Christ is the Father's means. Okay? This is the destination. The end by which Christ is the Father's means to get us there. Christ is what we're going to look like, and Christ is how we get there. Okay? He's both the end and the means to get there. So we have to understand that following Jesus isn't just a spiritual truth, something that happens in a vague, unseen, ethereal way. is a physical truth. We have to understand we follow him as the original disciples did. He taught them in parables, in lectures, sermons and by example and then sent the the 12 and then the 72 out to go and imitate him throughout israel right i hopefully we all are familiar with that story he taught them and taught them and taught them and when he thought they were ready he sent them out to do likewise and this is the process of what a disciple is he teaches us in an intimate relationship just like the original disciples had with him and then he sends us out to do likewise christian maturity is imitation Hey, I'm sorry for all of the people who want to be authentic and real and unique. Christian maturity is imitation. The process of following Jesus is meant to produce a copy, an image, a likeness, in thought, affection, action, and purpose. Jesus came to restore us to our true pursuit, and that is living as miniatures of God himself in this world for the benefit of others. Okay? A disciple... This is where we get down to what a disciple does. Last week we covered what a disciple is, a person being reimagined in the image of God. This week we're going to talk now, begin to talk about what disciples do. And disciples are devoted to learning and imitating Jesus. We learn as much as we can, and we imitate as much as we can. Disciples are students of Jesus. Learning from him directly, disciples, discipleship is the mission of the church. As we talked about last week, Jesus says in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God's desire, not just for you, not just for us, but for the entire world, is that all people would be students of Jesus, imitators of Jesus, would be in the process of actively pursuing and becoming like him, So that all men, all men, this is the desire of the Lord, would arrive in heaven to partake of the divine essence. Following and imitating Jesus transforms fallen men into what they were created to be, miniatures of their creator. 
And this is the work of God in man, lest anyone boast. Okay, you do not make yourselves in images of God, as I said. There's not enough polish in all the world. Beholding with unveiled face the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. Okay, this is what discipleship is. Now, let's get started. What do disciples do? In order to behold his face and be transformed daily, we have to follow him. We have to follow him. Mark 1.17. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now what I'm going to do is read from uh, R.C. Sproul's comments on this verse. Because this is important to give you some context here. Jesus' words, follow me, are interesting because there is a literal sense to them. In ancient Greece, Plato... That's right, we're going to talk about those weirdos, the Greeks. Plato established his academy in Athens. His most brilliant and famous student was Aristotle. Later, Aristotle started his own school, what we call a peripatetic philosopher. That's what Aristotle was. The word peripatetic means given to walking. Unfortunately for his students, he started this. He liked to lecture and walk around. And so literally had to leave the classroom and follow him. So as he's walking to the market, as he's walking around this grove of trees, He's just talking, and all of his students, if they wanted to learn from him, had to literally follow behind him, trying to memorize what he was saying, because you couldn't exactly write on, you know, clay while you're wandering around in in a grove of trees. So this is where this idea comes from. Now, I'm going to add to this that I actually think this is even older than that, because in Deuteronomy, God says to fathers, teaching your children, teach them when you go out, when you come in, when you sit down, when you get up, Right? The Greeks stole many things from us that we stole back. Um, and this is one of them. Um, if you go back far enough, I think the Jews started everything. But anyway, I digress. So this is the idea. You follow your, your master. Ra- so Jesus is a peripatetic rabbi, is what they would have called him. In his day, that's what they would have... He, he's a guy that travels around, and if his disciples want to learn from him, right... Imagine the the very first meeting. There's Peter and the other disciples, and they sit down comfortably under the shade of a tree, and then there goes Jesus. And it's like, oh, no, I have to follow him if I'm going to actually, right? So this is what I think stumps many of us. The command originally was literally to follow him, and they did, didn't they? They ate with him. They shared the common purse with him. They went everywhere he went. They went in the boat with him. The only time they would leave him is when he commanded them to leave him. Um, there's a whole other side of this, which uh, part of paying for this learning that you would get is you'd be the person's servant. Uh, I, this was really helpful to me because I, found, I thought it was confusing. Whenever Jesus tells people to, hey, go get me that donkey over there, I figured it's because he's God, and that's what God does is he tells people what to do. But <laughs> as a man, Jesus actually has authority because part of the disciples paying for their learning is that they actually are his servants. And so, I mean... So he's not being unnecessarily bossy. It's, it's how the relationship works, which is startling because Peter had his own business, his own boat, two homes, and a bunch of servants for himself. And he left all of that to become this man's servant and to follow him around and, and learn from him. So all of this is to say this is, this is where this idea starts. Okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to expand upon it because it's not different for us. There's not two kinds of disciples. There's not the disciples that were there when he was alive, and then we all follow him, and it's this weird, it's weird. Right? If you take it too literally, it's very weird. We have to understand what's the difference between us following him and them following him. Okay? Back, in, back then, they didn't have universities or schools as we know them, and so disciples physically followed their masters. 
Okay? They watched how they lived their lives, and they tried to memorize as much as they could from what, they, from what he said. And this is what they, they did, as I've already said. They watched him at table. They watched him on the road in conversation with a Samaritan woman, in conversations with religious leaders. He told them stories. They memorized his exposition of scripture. They memorized his stories. They studied what he said and how he said it and how he always backed it up with what he did. Right? Because this is where Jesus is better than any teacher you'll ever find because he lived perfectly consistently with what he taught. I've known lots of teachers. I was a teacher myself. And many times in Bible class, I'm telling the kids to do things I do not do myself. Okay? And obviously, we all we give grace. And right? I'm still supposed to instruct people even though I don't do it myself. Here I am right now. But what's good about him is he was always consistent. You're never going to find, obviously, him saying one thing and then doing something else. This is why he's the best teacher that ever lived. He's perfectly consistent. So this is what we're called to do. And I bet you're thinking to yourself, um, Mike, wait a minute. They had Jesus physically right there. I don't understand what you're saying. Jesus says, follow me. Okay, sure, where is he? Point to him. I'll go where he goes. Right? There's a Wendy's right down here. Is he hungry? Let's go eat. But it's very different for us. Okay? And yet it's the same. This is one of those mysteries of the Christian faith, and hopefully I can explain it better than I was explaining deification last week. Ha, ha, ha. No, Okay. Okay? It's an expectation that we possess the same intimate fellowship with him. We have an advantage that the disciples did not have when Jesus was with them. Now, they got it later at Pentecost, but we have it now, and that is the Spirit of God. We have the Spirit of God in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 6.17 But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Our spirit and his spirit are the same spirit. And what do you have when you have one spirit? You have unity. Complete unity. Right? How many times are the disciples looking and watching Jesus, listening to what he's saying, and they do not have unity? Right? At one point, Jesus says, how dare you say such a thing? They're always baffled by what he's doing because even though they're following him along, they lack the, that unity that one spirit brings. Okay? This is very important to understand. Now, they would get it later, okay? but this is an advantage that we have because having him united to us by one spirit is a fellowship that's closer than when than two guys sitting at a dinner table. I think we can all understand that. Right? And when we get down and pray, our spirits are communicating with his spirit, and, and there's a fellowship going on there that's even closer than the ones they experienced. Okay? We all know this about human relationships. You all have relationships where there is a deeper fellowship. Right? And it's when you have one mind, one will together. Sorry. This is when you're so united, like husband and wife, right? They go about, they, ha- they can, this is those weird things that I'm still just learning how to do. I've only been married 10 years, where we just look at one another and we just had like a four-hour conversation about what we're going to do, right? We just, there's that glance, bam, we're on the same page. This is the kind of intimacy we have with the Lord that his original disciples didn't have, okay? And so when he says, follow me, okay, physically he's not here, and yet by the Spirit of God he is. Because we're united to him where he's at. So everywhere we go, he's with us. This is why at the end of the Great Commission he says, I am with you always. Right? He doesn't, when you go to sleep, he doesn't take a break. And what's really fascinating about this is he's always with us. And we don't think about it that way. Long after we've forgotten him, he's still there. He's always with us. Right? (laughs) 
He sends the disciples off. He goes up on a mountain. They're separate from him. We never have that. He is with us always. And this is the first thing, the first pillar of this. We have to come back to this as much as we can in our prayer, as much as we can in our study, as much as we can in our encouraging one another. He's never not with us. Now, on one level, that should scare us because you know what you were doing this week when nobody else was around, right? You know the secret thoughts of your own mind. He was there, okay? He's there always. When you feel like there is no one else because there is no one else there, he's there, okay? And that's, <laughs> that's good and bad, but you know, on some level. But what we need to learn how, is how it's always good. Now, we are united with one spirit to God. We read eyewitness accounts, right? And we actually know more than what the eyewitnesses themselves knew. Think about this. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, or the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Not through Jesus, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So we know the secret thoughts of God. This is what I find to be fascinating about this. If, if Peter and John were coming down from the transfiguration and we found them there, we could explain to them what just happened to them better than they understand it themselves. Okay? They can tell us details that we don't know because they were there. Well, was it kind of an eggshell white that he turned or like white, white, right? I mean, they would be able to tell you that. They'd be like, we have no idea. I mean, Peter wanted to make tents. We were a little confused about what was going on. And you're like, that's him post-resurrection. Yeah, that's what you saw. I, I love this. When he meets the Samaritan woman at the well and the disciples who are there with him and we think they have some advantage over us, they come back and they're like, uh, Jesus, are you hungry? Is that, what is that what you're talking to that lady? No, guys, Okay. We have this benefit. We can explain it to them. No. See, this is like the patriarchs who met their wives at wells. He's at a well and he meets this woman. Because this is now the husband, not just to the Jews, but to the Samaritans in the whole world. And the disciples, just like they would say to Jesus, would just scratch their heads and be totally befuddled. Now, this is what I find to be fascinating about this. We could actually sit down with eyewitnesses in the midst of the account and tell them things they don't know but we don't think about it that way. And we're not that impressed by that, right? Of course I know the secret thoughts of God. I have an iPhone, right? There's a secret thoughts of God app, right? I mean, I can talk to people in Holland right now. I can, I can, I can see their face. Of course, the secret things of God are not secret to me. I have a modern public school education, right? We, we take the things we have so for granted, we take them for granted. I mean, I have thought myself, when I first experienced this as a Christian, it's like, it's ridiculous to think that I can follow them the same way. Because they, they had them there. But later, what does Jesus say? It's better for you that I go away so I can sit in the Spirit. And I'm, it's going to take the rest of my life to figure out why he would say something that sounds so silly. But think of it. He gives us the Spirit that unites us to him in mind and heart and will in a way that nobody, none of these disciples in these gospel accounts ever experienced. Not until after Pentecost. And it's yours. That's what he offers to you. He gives it freely. Do you want unity with me? Here's my spirit. 
You want to understand the secret thoughts of God? Things that angels long to look into, as Peter says? Here's the Spirit of God. Okay, now we also have another benefit. Another benefit that we have now that they didn't have then is this. Okay? They, they were too busy and moving too quickly to sit down and savor the things that Jesus said and did. Right? Did that guy just feed 4,000 people with a, oh, we got to go. He's going. Look, there he goes. Right? And John says it at the end of his gospel. If we wrote down everything the man did, we couldn't possibly fit it in to all the books in the world or something I'm paraphrasing. And this is what's fascinating about it. They, they were just, bam, 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 Jesus is doing, what, read Mark, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And who can possibly sit down and comprehend that? Now, we, on the other hand, have a written record. I can sit down for the next three months and do nothing but read the story of Jesus raising Lazarus, and I can savor every single verse. I can go read 15 commentaries. I can, I can take systematic theologies off the shelf where... Brothers and sisters have been contemplating these things for 2,000 years, and I can take the fruit of that and read it and savor it and go back and read the stories again. Peter couldn't do that. Peter was, I mean, he just memorized the information. He had no idea what it meant. He had no time. And so this is, this is what I'm saying. Do you want to set the Lord before your face? Do you want to behold him? Here he is. And you can do it as much as you want, as often as you want. There's no end. And, and, to understand it, its secrets and its mysteries, he gives you his spirit. You don't need a PhD to understand it. Okay? This is profound. And this should shame us all a great deal. Because how often are we completely unimpressed with this? I mean, this is what I find to be fascinating. I own like 20 of these things. I have some, I kind of want to own every edition that ESV puts out. I don't know what it is, but... Right? And there they are on my shelf. And they're beautiful looking. You know, the most beautiful looking books I have. And do you know how many people died in order to get this into... I mean, this is, this is us, right? So I sit down, I complain about the fact that we're having pork instead of steak, not realizing all the work that went into it. This is the kind of thing humans do. And, right? and having the Spirit doesn't save us from this. We are ungrateful beings. Right? You want to behold him? Here he is. Do you have questions about it? Get on your knees and ask God through the Spirit, and he will tell you his secret thoughts. Okay, but we go on from this, right? We are people of the word, and so we should be people of words. We are people of the book, and so we should be people of, the, of books. We should be studiers. School is in session. Okay, Jesus says, follow me. And if you follow him, you study him. Not just all of the doctrines about him, but him. Him specifically, the person. How does he eat? How does he speak? How does he engage with people? How does he pray? How does he handle the stress of taxes? The threat of natural disasters? The death of a friend? How did he give gifts at a wedding? How did he tell a joke? And he did. Lots of them. The first time somebody, because there is some distance between their sense of humor and mine, and things are lost in translation, literally, but the first time I actually explained that that whole fish with the money in his mouth is like a joke, right? And, and Jesus tells like this kind of funny pun through the whole thing. The first time I read that, I thought Jesus told jokes. Like I thought life was too serious for that. But he does, right? We, we don't, we do such a terrible job of knowing him. 
there were people for many years who, who said he never laughs. There's not one recorded time where he laughs, and so he never laughed, which is a ridiculous thing. If you get to studying him, the man has an incredible sense of humor. Sorry, I got off on a little trail there. How does he do things? How does he tell stories? What role does music play in his life? Did he study church history? How did he celebrate holidays? How did he receive gifts? How did he deal with fragile sinners, arrogant sinners, authorities, servants, peers? God the Father wants you to know him. As a child, knows his father. As a wife, her husband. As a man, his friend. What's your excuse for not knowing him better? How well do you know him? Don't explain to me the two natures. I'm not talking about that kind of knowing. How well do you know him, the person? What was his favorite food? I'm guessing if you actually sat down with your Bible and took some time, you could figure it out. Why don't we know him better? What is preventing us from doing it? He is your God. He dwells inside of you. How well can you describe him? How well do you really know him? Now, go beyond the words for a moment, okay? Because when you really know a man, you can go beyond you know, the, just what you know about the facts about them. I recently experienced this. I was talking with my wife about a friend I've known since I was 14, and I know him well. And we were talking about a situation he would be in and what he might do. And I found it fascinating that I could just, in a sense, know what he was going to do. And then, actually, that's what he did. <laughs> now, how, how do I know that? Because I've experienced the man in so many different situations since we were 14 that you get to know people. Now, this is what I'm saying. Go beyond the what would Jesus do bracelets of the 1990s. I wore one. I'm not ashamed. He is in the car with you on your way to work. He's at the dinner table with you. He's in the break room with you. He's in the bedroom and the bathroom and the backyard with you. He shops with you and eats with you. He lives under the same roof with you. His bank account is your bank account. Do you live in the same manner intentionally with him? Are you following him to work, to the store, to the soccer game and rehearsal and prayer meeting? Are you watching the news with him? How does he see your coworkers versus how do you see them? How does he see your neighbor versus how you see them? How does he see your spouse versus how you see them? Are you with him always? He's with you always. He's never apart from you. Why are we ever apart from him? That's what we have to deal with. And we have to deal with it. Okay? We're not just going to be like, this is not about you feeling bad and simply feeling bad. What is preventing us from knowing him better? From describing him like a man describes a friend? Okay, you study him because that's what people who love him do. So do you love him? Because he is amazing. He's the king. He's our Lord. People who love him, who are so grateful for the gifts of the Spirit and the Scriptures, study him, and then they imitate him. Assimilate and, and imitate. Following is not mere observation. It isn't merely knowing, but doing. Doing what he did in the circumstances in, circumstances in which he leads us. Imitation is how every person learns anything. <laughs> right? Every person learns through assimilating and imitating. I shave exactly the same way my father does. We were actually on an overnight trip recently, and I was shocked to see that we actually, like, start to finish, shave exactly the same way. Right? I fold clothes exactly like my mom. I've had to unlearn all of that and learn how Anne Marie folds them, which has been awesome. 
especially, especially towels. I don't even know what I do with towels. Right? How, how do children learn to read? This is a C. This is the sounds C made. You do it now. Let me go through the sounds. Okay, now, when you take a C and an A and a T, what are those sounds together? You do it, and they do it. This is how we learn everything. How did you learn how to drive? How did you learn how to use utensils? The examples of this, I mean, is everything. Everything we learn, we observe, right? We read about it, or we watch someone do it, or we watch a YouTube video, and then we go do it ourselves, imitating exactly what we saw in the video, exactly what we saw the teacher do, the coach, right? I can swing a baseball bat. Uh, this is what, the other day, I tried to get my, I was like, okay, kids, we're going to play baseball. And then I remembered I've never shown them how to actually hold a bat and swing it. Somehow I just thought that they just, American kids were just born with the ability to swing a bat. <laughs> right? But I forgot that important f- part where I actually show them how to do it. The, um, the examples of this, again, are just our legion. Okay? We imitate parents, teachers, coaches, everyone. Learning virtue is done through imitation as well. Okay? What God is calling us to do is to be intentional about this, learning virtue. That was this, what was read for us earlier today. Jesus shows us how a true child of God is to live and then sends us out to do it, equipped with his power and strength in the spirit to do it. Okay, this is what love looks like, he says with his life. You put him before your face, you get to know this is what love is. Okay, now I'm going to go and I'm going to do that. This is how we learn virtue. Education in virtue is a kind of formation, a retraining of your dispositions. Learning virtue, becoming virtuous, is more like practicing scales on the piano than learning music theory. Okay? It's, learning virtue is not like memorizing Romans 1. Learning virtue is not like memorizing the Ten Commandments. It's doing it over and over and over again. Right? Have you ever, how, do people, how does Wayne know how to just, his hand just moves up and down? And it's weird. Does his hand just know what an A is? An A-N-E? Right? He's, he's done it so many times, he doesn't really have to think about it. Right? I don't think about driving. It's amazing. I leave my house in the morning, and I don't even think about the fact I'm going to work at all, and then bam, I'm there. I, how did I even get here? This is what God wants us to do with virtue. He wants us to do it over and over and over again. Get it down into our essence. This is where he's going with us. This is where he's going. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, love. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, these are your qualities and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dean covered this. I'm not going to go back to it. Are you ineffectual for the sake of Christ? Is it perhaps because you're not studying him and you're not attempting to imitate him? Because, right, is your religion simply coming here once a week, going through this whole process, which can actually be very encouraging, even if you just leave it here? Are you going then into the world and continuing to study him, continuing to imitate him? That's what you're called to. I'm sorry to meddle in your life. But when I'm ineffectual, it's because... I'm not doing this. This is what keeps us on the bench. This is what keeps us from being worthless, in a sense, for the spreading of the gospel. It's because we're not studying what we should be. School's in session, and we're, you know, we're in the back throwing bubble gum at one another. That was me. I sat in the back, right? This was, this is, you're not supposed to drink soda in class. This is how I used to do it with my paper. 
right? I'm the kid goofing around in the back and nothing has changed, right? School's in session and we're in the back doing who knows what. James Smith points out that in our culture that prizes authenticity and places a premium on novelty and uniqueness, imitation has received a bad rap. As if being an imitator is synonymous with being a fake. But the New Testament holds imitation in a very different light. Follow my example, Paul says, as I follow the example of Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Jesus is the example. And anyone who imitates him is likewise worthy of being an example. Luckily, though, Okay? If imitation is what is required, luckily, following Jesus includes his providential rule, his controlling of your life and its daily events, and plenty of opportunity for imitation. Right? We have to, this is what he wants. He's, he knows which of the fruit of the Spirit you need more of. And he's a very faithful teacher. His lesson plan is perfect. The problem is we, we don't like it because that's not what we want more of, right? I want to sit around and watch the Seahawks. I want to sit around, I want to read novels. I want to sit around, I want, I want to go my own way and do my own thing and control. We, we resist it. You have to be willing to follow Christ. When he says, follow me, this is, it's not a spiritual truth. You've got to go with him and what he's calling you into. Wherever he leads you, whatever direction he's taking to get there. He's always calling you to abandon your own path in the world's way of life. He's calling you to submit, to follow, to trust, to obey. Okay? He says, come this way. Through illness, big and small. Through foreclosure. Through two extra years of college. Through job changes and unexpected pregnancy and miscarriage. He says, follow me. I'm with you to the end of the age. Trust me. Through long waits for a job and long waits for a spouse and long courtships. Through long searches for the right home and long waits for the prodigal child. When your difficult family circumstances cause you to move from one country to another, when you open your home or build a home on your property for the in-laws, when wife is laid up for six weeks or longer, and your marital intimacy changes. Follow me, he says. School's in session, and you have the perfect teacher. And he's provided you with his word a perfect picture of himself perfect recording of his life the, the example it, he's provided you with the spirit all the strength that you need to follow whatever is in front of you right this is the door opens in the morning and he's there and he says follow me you go to work he says follow me you sit down at the homeschool table he says follow me this is, we have to understand this. We have to understand this. These are the opportunities to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, to experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if you've spent too much time setting the wrong examples before your eyes, instead of setting Christ before your eyes, you will fail. Without even a, there won't even be a try. You will sit down at the test and you will realize, I didn't study. This is the Christian life study. School is in session. The test is coming. <laughs> Before you probably even leave the parking lot. Before you wake up tomorrow, he's saying, follow me. He has it all. He has a lesson plan for you that's perfect. He's led us here, and by example of his dependence and humility and grace, 
laying before us now, in front of us now. Behold. Behold the Lord and what he's done for you and what he provides to you. Now, who is sufficient for these things? This is a question. This is some time ago my wife and I were talking about this. At what point did we believe we could do all of these things? At what point do we think did we become convinced that he gave us these things to do because we can do them in ourselves? If you stop and you think about your spouse, you think about your kids, your job, your friends, you think about everything that is in your life, who's sufficient for it? Right? At what point did you think it was your iPhone that was going to get you through? Your godlike understanding of the world. All of that strength. If I just got four more hours of sleep, I'd be able to handle this. It's the kind of nonsense that we tell ourselves. Who's sufficient? The promises of God are that he will lead us through the grave to glory eternal. He will complete what we can't ourselves. No matter how virtuous we become, it's a mere imitation. The final transformation is by Christ. That is our hope. Our work is not in vain. Our attempts at obedience are not absurd. We get to taste the final transformation in our virtuous acts here, just as we get to partake of the final wedding feast now in the Lord's Supper. But be prepared. You have to follow Jesus all the way. Follow him all the way to heaven. All the way to full and unfettered and incorruptible sonship in which we eternally partake of his essence. This is why Paul wrote in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So endure. Do not become faint-hearted. You failed a lot. And the only one that is probably shocked by that is you. Okay? This is what I repent of to my kids all the time. Uh, why am I shocked that you disobey? Why am I shocked that there's foolishness caught up in your heart? Why am I the only one that's surprised that I just did that stupid thing? Right? This is why he came. This is what he wants us to stop doing. And he provided, if you go back and you look, there was the way out all along and I didn't take it because I was ill-prepared for the test. It was read for us this morning, Second Peter 1.4, by which he was granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Now, there will always be a distinction between the triune God and his creatures. But his promises to us, what he is turning us into, how he is using our journey to transform us, is the hope and strength to continue running. We are adopted children. And adopted children act like, talk like, look like, and imitate their parents. I always think it's hilarious. Right? I love when I see Isaiah and I see Dean. I love when I see Isaiah and I see Byron. Right? It's, I'm just, it's profound how human beings are and how we learn through imitation. But no adopted child in the history of the world, in the end, was given their parents' DNA to be made fully and completely one with them. And that is what's offered to all of us. He's going all the way down, and he's transforming from the inside out everything about you. And he's doing it tomorrow. He's doing it right now. He's doing it today. Okay? This week is what this is. This is what your life is about. Okay? If you don't want to follow him, that's a decision you're going to have to make. But he's calling you to do this. He knows you. He loves you. He says, I'm with you. I've provided it.
here's an image of myself. Here's how children of God are ought to live, and here's the spirit by which you go and do it. There's two paths. On one, he stands, and the other, the world. And he says, follow me. Right? It's, unfortunately, it's not an easy chair. Right? It's, not a, it's not a cabana with some people there fanning you and giving you lemonade. He says, follow me, because what he's doing is transforming you into an image of himself. Right? This is our hope. Right? I, I love these heavy sermons. Right? The, the blues make a body feel good. I fool about with all kinds of things in this world. I am ill-prepared for the tests that come to me. And it's because I resist this command. Follow me. Now, he loves you. He loves you so much that he's willing to take away everything that prevents you from being with him forever, from being one with him forever. He is what he's offering. Do you want that? Do you want to be like him? Do you want to be with him forever? So he says, come, follow me. Go to him, and he will give you all the strength that you need. Go to him, and he will give you all the understanding that you need. Go to him, and he will lead you all the way through, no matter what you're going through. Okay? Heaven at the end of the resurrection is not some great restoration. I think we need to get that idea out of our head. He's not going to justify your tears. He's not going to give you back this body that through old age and illness is wearing out. It's so much more than a restoration. Right? You will look upon him, and you won't care about the tears. You will look upon him, and you won't care about the sin. You won't remember the sin. You will look upon him, and by beholding him, you will become like him, and you will never know doubt or failure or fear or sin ever again. Follow. That's what he's calling you to. Tomorrow morning when you get up, this afternoon when you get in your cars, even, let's come right up to the front door. Let's get up and let's follow him. Let's follow him. Because... It's too glorious, it's too good, it's too hopeful, it's too beautiful not to. And amen. amen. Father, we thank you so much for this time to come here to open our hearts and minds to you. We've, we've followed you here, Father. And your son continues. He, he beckoned the disciples at the beginning, follow me. And just before he ascended, he said the same thing, follow me. You know where, we're at in our, where we are at in our lives. You have led us there. And we pray, Father, that you would give us, by your Spirit, the strength and the faith to look to you to complete in us what you've begun. We are distracted by this world. We are distracted by our own lives. And we pray, Father, that you would focus our hearts and our minds and our eyes so solidly upon you that we wouldn't look away.